the most important thing for me to make a decision on is who I'm making a bet on. I hope you heard Brad Sumrock on episode 41. He came to the podcast with a ton of value. We've got tickets available to an event hosted by Denver Apartment Network. The event is June 5th. And guess what? I'm here to give you a promo code to get these $95 tickets absolutely free just for the listeners of the Creative Real Estate Podcast. But the offer ends next week, so go get the free tickets now and save yourself almost 100 bucks. You'll find the Eventbrite link in the show notes. When you register, just put the promo code DANFREE, that's D-A-N-F-R-E-E, all in capitals for Denver Apartment Network Free. Anyway, put in that promo code and you'll save $95, the entire $95, just because you're a loyal listener of this podcast. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by realbluespruce.com. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast, where you'll learn unique and innovative ideas to structure your real estate transactions. My name's Adam Adams. I've done house hacking, fix and flips, tax deeds, private lending. I've even purchased multi-million dollar apartments. I've done all this without a dime of my own money because I have the knowledge to be able to utilize strategies like lease options, subject to owner finance and strategic partnerships with the right people so I could get deals done and make some money. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to thank you for being a loyal listener. If you love this content, I hope you'll stop by iTunes and leave a five-star rating. That way, the podcast can attract more great guests that you can pick up nuggets from. Today, I think you guys are in for a giant treat. We've got Jeremy Roll. I think it would do some good to kind of go over a few of the things that I had some notes on for you because you've done some incredible things, Jeremy. First off, He's been involved in real estate for over 16 years, and back in 2007, he actually quit his full-time job so that he could be a full-time passive investor. So I'm excited to ask a little bit more of, uh, of, of this full-time passive investor of over 70 different properties or opportunities, $500 million of worth, but that's, uh, that's both real estate as well as businesses that he's been investing in. As a founder and president uh, of Roll Investment Group, Jeremy also manages a group of about a thousand investors who all seek passive and management cash flowing opportunities, which is really, really cool. Jeremy is also a co-founder of uh, this group out in California, right? Yeah, we're mostly in Southern California. Yeah. And, is, and is it Phoebe or do you go FIBI? I say FIBI, but almost everybody says Phoebe. Okay, which is actually really rad because there's 25,000 investors involved in FIBI, which is for investors by investors, a nonprofit organization that he launched back in 2007 with the goal of facilitating networking and also learning among real estate investors. And there's absolutely a strict no sales pitch in his group, which I can appreciate. I do the same thing in our meetup groups here in Denver. What did I miss in your bio? Because there's some incredible bullet points there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Just a couple other quick things. So I am originally from Montreal, Canada. I moved out to US in 98. So it's been a while now. Uh, mostly living in LA, but I've actually lived before in uh, Philadelphia for a couple of years doing my MBA. I got my MBA over at the Wharton School um, or University of Pennsylvania. Um, I also am a licensed California real estate broker, but for just for investing purposes, I've never used it for anything retail or any real transactions like anyone's thinking. I am also an advisor for Realty Mogul, which is the largest uh, real estate crowdfunding website in the US. 
And so I was actually I've been involved with them since before they launched. I was on their investment committee for a couple of years as well. And I still do some advisory work for them. So I'm their only outside advisor. That's incredible. I've, I know of Realty Mogul. They are, they are huge. And I think you said that they're the, they're the biggest crowdfunding yeah, they are by dollar by dollar volume done. Yeah, cool. I mean everybody like you know the registered years and all that. Some of that's a little confidential, but by okay. dollar volume, as far as I know, and I, I hope I'm not wrong, but as far as I know, okay. Yeah, I and should also I want to correct one other thing I said. So I'm not their only outside advisor, but I'm only I think I'm their only outside advisor who is also not an investor. So okay, good deal. And and one of the things that you mentioned is that with Realty Mogul, you were involved even before they started. Is that correct? That's right. And actually, it's funny because I met one of the co-founders, the really well-known one, Jillian Hellman, at one of our FIBI meetings. That's, I was on a panel and she came up to me after when she had this idea. And so, yeah, it was before they launched. Let's get into a couple of things that are in this bio. $500 million worth of business and real estate. How much of that is business? How much is that is uh, real estate? Yeah. So, it's funny because as you mentioned, I realized I have to update it. So, um, it's actually over a billion now, but you know, the unfair wow. thing, about it, yeah, the, the unfair thing about it is like, for example, I invested in the startup that, uh, and I mean, I'm a tiny piece of everything that I invest in, right? That's my, okay. that's, that's my goal. And that's the reality. And so I invested a small amount in the startup and the seed round of a company called Thrive Market. Bottom line is it's done very well. It's, um, it's become very large. And so like now, for example, my best guess of what they're worth is probably based on their previous investing round, probably like 500 to 750 million or more. So that alone, like, you know, eclipses the whole thing that the whole number I use, but you know, it's not really fair because that's, I'm a small piece of it. Right. But yeah, I'm, I'm invested across many different things. My favorite's commercial real estate. Okay. Uh, commercial real estate um, and not just multifamily. Uh, what other kinds of commercial real estate do you do? Frankly, I'm in everything you could think of as far as I know, except for hotels purposefully. And also I've never invested in senior living, but I really want to. I just haven't found the right type of deal and have right to acquire yet. But I mean, I'm in, I'll give you some examples. I'm in apartments, student housing apartments, office, industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks. I'm, I know I'm missing some basically. Um, and then I'm in all aspects of single family as well. So flips, uh, or I have been before, either or. So flips, hard money lending, buy and hold, notes, secondary note purchases. How, how about uh, the cannabis industry? So I actually have investments on both the real estate side of cannabis, where we're actually a leasing industrial warehouse in Colorado, for example, to a grow house. But I also oh. am an investor in Oakland on the growth side, on the business side. Let's talk a little bit more about what passive investing really means so that the audience can understand if that's something that they'd like to do or not. So... Um, when you do your passive investments, what does a deal typically look like? Sure. So actually, if I could take a step back, you know, what is even passive investing, right? Mm -hmm. Because everybody has their own definition. So I like to tell people that I consider passive to be a lack of control. So what I tell people is like, my opinion is that I trade control for diversification. Mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is that in exchange for giving someone else control, who's hopefully an expert in that asset class, I could put a small piece across many deals going back to that diversification. Whereas let's say if you want to buy a home to rent it and let's say you have to put $100,000 down or something to buy it, um, I might be able to put $25,000 across four other opportunities and they might be much bigger properties. Um, and so I put small pieces across more deals, but I trade control for diversification. So for me, you're passive, you do not have control. If you own a single family home, you have title to it, you can choose to hire and fire a property manager, you can choose to sell at any time. You are the one they call to ask if they, you want them to, like they want their toilet replaced by this brand or that brand. To me, you have control. 
Mm. That's not passive, even though some people consider it passive because it may be managed by a third property property manager, third party property manager. To me, that's not really passive. Passive is truly passive where you actually have no control and you're making a bet on somebody else to manage all the day-to-day decisions on it. Okay, um, so by Jeremy's definition, uh, yes. going out and buying a single family rental wouldn't technically be passive because you're still making decisions. You still have to maybe go to the property or manage the manager. In your case, uh, and I'm sorry I interrupted you, but in your case, you're putting money somewhere and not being involved with any of the tenants, toilets, uh, decisions, all that. Exactly. All my work is up front. So if you can imagine, basically, the most important thing for me to make a decision on is who I'm making a bet on. Because mm. once I give control to somebody, they can run the property into the ground, they could be fraudulent, they can mismanage it, they can do other things. Yeah. So the person I'm making a bet on is even more important than the, the actual investment itself, which is clearly important as well. And so yeah. all my work is up front determining, do I want to invest in this person and do I want to invest in this asset? And once I make that decision, I'm on to the next and then they're managing it. I'm reading the core of the reports, but no one's ever calling me about a toilet. No one's ever calling me because a tenant is causing a problem. No one's ever calling me to evict somebody. Um, and, you know, I think that if you're active, the benefit of being active besides that you have control and some people that aren't comfortable giving up control, which I completely understand, is that often you're making a bit more of a profit because you're actually more involved and you're doing some of those functions. And so you, you're able to keep, you know, here there's an additional layer of management and someone who's actually overseeing the property all the time. So the profitability is a little higher when you have control, I think, but then the diversification is better when you don't have control. So there's trade-offs like everything else in life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool stuff. So how, how do you actually uh, do your own due diligence on the human being? Like what is, what does that process look like for you when you're trying to find out if you trust uh, somebody to manage your money? Yeah. It's, you know, it's really, a lot of people ask me that. And in the end of the day, it really comes down to a gut check as, as not as like, as much as that's not a good answer for you, that's really how I function with it. Now I do a bunch of things. So besides doing always doing background checks on the managers, which unfortunately a lot of the investors I talk to don't do that, but I think they should because it saved me a number of times. So I do background checks. That's number one, but probably even more as important as background checks is as an investor, I'm trying to find someone who's looking to be conservative. They're trying to under promise over deliver, create long-term relationships with investors by doing that right on Mm -hmm. purpose. And so they're looking to exceed their projections to make people happy so they can reinvest with them and continue to invest with them long-term, really long-term thinking, right? So how do you know if, if they are, how do you know if they're really doing that? How do you right. know if they're being conservative? Right. So what, what I do is um, it's, a, it's a few things that I do that's all these combinations of things together. So, so first step one, read the offering memorandum, right? Or the PowerPoint or the presentation, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And Sometimes just by reading it, you'll, you'll get like, you know, some, some verbiage, for example, they might say, um, you know, we used an average annual rent growth of 2% per year in the pro forma, even though we think that this area is going to have 4% per year because we were trying to be conservative. So that's okay. what I'm looking for. Now that okay. may come out in the offering memorandum, but it may come out in a phone discussion, right? And so what I do is a combination of reading the offering memorandum, reading between the lines of the offering memorandum, like I'm talking about and then asking a whole bunch of questions to the managers to uh, both gauge their answers, but also read between the lines and how they answer. So if they gave me that kind of an answer when I asked them on the phone what the annual rent growth was projected to be, checking a box, right? Mm-hmm. But I could tell you a flip side of like how you would answer where you, you know, the answer you don't wanna hear, where like somebody's buying something at a certain cap rate 
And assuming the cap rate's gonna be lower in 10 years, we're almost at the end of a cycle. And then when you ask them, they're like, no, no, it's a strong growth market. Or let's say they're assuming 5% rent growth for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, no, rent has been increasing for that. They're gonna continue on, you know? So to me, I'm trying to avoid someone who's over-promising, probably gonna under-deliver and just making the numbers look good to really attract investors. Yep. That's what I'm trying to avoid. And mm-hmm. so you kind of put all these pieces together and then you do a final gut check. And the other thing too is I will never invest with somebody unless I've actually met them in person at least once. Because that gut check also happens in person as you're interacting with them. Nothing to do with even these other things I'm talking about. Just spending an hour or two walking a property with them. So yeah. it's a combination of all these pieces together. But the end result really comes back to what is the gut check in the end of the day? You know, what is, what is your gut telling you? Yeah. So if you have to meet with the person in person and just to invest with them and maybe maybe somebody on here thinks that they have a great opportunity uh what might be that process would they fly to you or or what my preference is to walk the property with, the, mm, with okay the okay that that's actually my number one the second the, the next best case scenario is meet them at their office so that you actually see mm. where they are maybe meet some of their partners at the same time maybe meet some of their staff um great. you know and it's funny because even their office like to me I, I won't name names, but I watch a lot of YouTube videos for education. And there's a very well-known person who drives around who's a real estate syndicator. And he does a tremendous, he is amazing at marketing. And I do actually listen to some of his videos. I think some of his advice is very interesting, but you see him in a Bentley all the time and you see him on a private jet all the time. That's actually what I'm trying to avoid, right? Because that tells you a little bit about how they're going to be managing the properties, how they spend money. And that's not necessarily conservative, right? So even those types of things, you want to make sure you're aligned with who you're investing with. So the best case scenario is to be able to meet them up on the property, make all these judgments and actually walk in and get their perspective on the property, even get them to drive the area and give you a tour of the area and why they like the area and what they specifically are pointing out to you, how detailed are they? Yeah. So, so if I show you my Honda, that, that, that's actually a good thing. Well, it's funny because if you had a 20 year old Honda, right. And it was barely running, that tells me something, <laughs> right? If you okay, own, okay. like I have a very good friend of mine who has a very large portfolio of homes in Memphis. I've invested with many times, great guy. And he drives a 2008 Honda Accord here in LA. It's continuing on, it's in great shape. We're talking about whether he might buy a new one soon. To me, it's like, that's the epitome, you know, like cars in great condition, it's not mm-hmm. falling apart. He sees no need to spend money on a car. He's focused on his business. That's yeah. like the right alignment to me. Of course, everyone's different, but I'm just saying like, you know, you take these little bits of pieces and that's how you get the, the re, that's how you really get a read on somebody. This is like the epitome of trying to figure someone out when you live in Los Angeles, right? Because <laughs> a Range Rover doesn't really mean much. But, yeah. but look, in all honesty, look, I'm actually a car guy. So in all fairness, like we're clearly making a lot of generalizations, right? If yeah. I was a car guy and I was driving a Porsche because that's what I love and that's what I want to spend my money on, but then I'm conservative everything else that I do, right? Then that also tells you something else. So it's not just about the car. Like I want to make sure everybody okay. out there think that I'm just judging someone on a car. Yeah. One of many pieces that you can pull to kind of get a full picture of somebody, you know, reading between the lines. So yeah. Now that I think we have a lot of the background on on what a passive investor is and uh some of the due diligence that you're doing on somebody, now let's uh imagine for a second that you see an opportunity that was great and and a and a person that you vetted and you feel really comfortable with them. You've done your gut check. What does it then look like for you to go into a passive investment with them? Yeah, I mean, at that point, honestly, if you decide you're going to move forward in the stuff that I invest in, which is typically they're called syndications, which means they're pooling a lot of investors together. Mm. There's 
there's very common documents. It's called one is an operating agreement to review, which dictates that just like in any other LLC uh, that does pull or does put together, it, it's all the rules of the company. So you're going to review that and make sure that you agree with everything. And if you don't, you can ask questions about it. You usually can't necessarily affect changes in it, but you may want to walk away from something if you don't necessarily agree with, let's say, a cash call provision or reporting requirements or many other important things. Private place memorandum, which is also known as a PPM, which is a document that the SEC required in certain circumstances most people use to kind of uh, outline all the risks associated with the opportunity and some other you know, items about the business plan and everything else. You gotta read that because even though it's a long legal document, if there's something about the business plan you don't agree with or something about the fee disclosure you don't agree with, you know, that, those are your chances to really learn about the ins and outs and make sure you're actually comfortable with them. Assuming that all works, then what you want to do is um, open up something called a subscription agreement, which is essentially you subscribing to the uh, to owning shares or interests in the LLC. Mm. That's where you fill all your information out and you send the check along with that. Sometimes there's a, a supplemental investor questionnaire. Mm. Some opportunities you have to be uh, what's called accredited investor, and some of them you can be non-accredited. Um, that has to do with the category of income or net worth that you have. It's just a definition by the SEC. It's not like being a part of a club. Um, okay. And so they'll maybe check to see if you're accredited or not. You'll check certain boxes out. And then you just send in your paperwork and money. And then um, they have to accept it. They actually have the right to reject anybody's paperwork. They don't have to accept anybody into an LLC if they don't want to. Okay. Once they accept it and once it closes, you'll typically get a notice letting you know that everything's closed. And then you typically will get, you know, it, most of the opportunities I invest in, you'll get quarterly reports. That's the most common. So you'll get quarterly reports and hopefully quarterly cash code checks going forward, you know, starting off after that. Mm. Uh, so that's typically how the process works. So as far as maybe apartment investing, Scott, something that I understand a lot better than the other types of commercial assets, PPMs and quarterly distributions. When has there been a time where you've invested in an opportunity that you knew you wouldn't get a first quarter or second or maybe third, but you still did the deal? Yeah. So it's interesting. I'm really strict on my cash flow because essentially mm. my whole premise and why I got into this type of investing 16 years ago is I wanted to get away from the uncertainty and unpredictability of the stock market, not knowing where my retirement account would be in a year, 10 years, 20 years, and go into more predictable type of investing. And so I focus on low risk, passive cash flow, 8,200% occupied properties. I literally want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, and not much has changed because I'm depending on the, the check to come in to live off of that cash flow. So I have a very strict requirement that I've got to have cash flow starting within the first quarter or two. Now, mm. if, 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 so if you could picture this, let's say that you invest two thirds of the way through a quarter. So let's say your investment's accepted on March 1st, and that's when the clock starts ticking. You may not get a check for that first month's cash flow. The operator may or may not choose to send that. They may just accumulate it to make it easier. And then they may only send the first check next quarter. So that's another mm. few months out. So that to me is completely fine and standard, frankly. What's not okay. okay for me is like, if you said to me, look, I'm doing a rehab on the building, it's value add, you're not gonna get your first check because we're spending money rehabbing the building for nine to 18 months. You know, there's a thousand ways to invest and none of them is necessarily wrong, which is not what I do personally because I really wanna make sure that we have that predictable cash flow. So I haven't really been in a situation very often. I mean, I make the odd investment like in a startup where I don't expect any cash flow. Mm, That's okay. like 1% of what I do. 99% of what I do is just focus on cash flowing hard assets. So let's talk about, has there been a time where you expected a first quarter distribution, but it ended up taking a month or two or a quarter past what you expected? And if I, so I how did that work out? Yeah, I wouldn't say that there's been a situation where like 
I didn't get a quarterly check, let's say within two quarters when something should have been paid. Now, have I gotten opportunities where the check was lower than what I expected to start or higher than what I'd expect? For sure, 100% for sure. But I wouldn't say there was a situation where I was expecting that check, you know, that March scenario where I didn't get the check in April, May, and then I didn't get it the quarter after. That would be that would actually be really, really bad because I'm mm. investing in stuff that's stabilized that's already cash flowing. So yep. we're already collecting from the moment we close on it. So if I'm not getting that check, something is very, very wrong. Um, I've not experienced that type of problem yet. Okay, great deal. Uh, I like that. So um, uh, we can start to wrap it up, but I think that there's going to be a lot of information that's in your head, which I don't know how to ask uh, to pull it out the right way. So what I'll ask you is what would be the top two or three things that you would suggest to somebody getting started into passive investing that might allow them to do it better, faster, or to do it more profitably? Okay, good question. Um, those are all different points. So let me see what's coming to mind here. Let, let, me, let me go into all those three. Then I'll do one for each point. Sorry. So for better, I would say that right now, understand real estate is cyclical. And right now, and everyone's going to have their own opinion. I'm not an investment advisor, so this is just my perspective as an investor. But I think we're at the end of the cycle. So, you know, it's funny. I, I just had this, I had this conversation almost every day. I had it earlier today. You know, the question is, if you're looking at an investment today and you can say to yourself, it's 2007, we're at the end of a cycle. Does this make sense to me right now? You can answer that question as to yes. That's going to make you a better investor today. Because if you're not actually asking that question, I think you're doing yourself a disservice because we probably are, whether it's if we're two or three years at the end of a cycle, we're probably not 10, we're probably not seven, we're probably not five. So asking yourself that question today will make you a better investor right now as far as probability of success in the mm. next five, 10 years on what you're investing in today. So that's the better. I love that. Um, the more profitable. For more profitable, I would be very picky and make sure you have taken the time to learn what the market rate are for um, the investor structures typically what I invest in as a preferred return and then a profit split with the operator after and some fees associated with it if you didn't take the time to learn and get educated on what preferred return you should be earning what splits are fair and what management fees are fair you're not going to be as profitable if you're just going to randomly go into opportunities that you didn't even understand mm. were not as favorable as they should have been or at least not fair as far as the structure goes compared to what I call the market rate which means you got to read a lot of opportunities and really come to a decision on what's average and you want to hit at least average or better to make yourself more profitable. Right? So let, let's talk about that for a second. A few, a few points that you brought up uh, through that just are, are solid. Um, so the first one are, would you suggest that somebody spend the extra time before investing in the first one? Are you saying uh, to that they still need to go and read a whole bunch of others first or is there another way for them to get that information yeah great question well you know there's two ways that come to mind that you can really educate yourself one is you can go to a lot of the networking meetings like the fibis of the world um, and listen to speakers on the right topics that's number one number two is you can listen to great podcasts like this with speakers on the right topics to learn as well those are two very efficient ways and number three uh, is opportunity exposure. So I learned mostly through opportunity exposure along with education. And what I mean by opportunity exposure is if you're going to invest in a multifamily deal, why not go onto a crowdfunding site? If you're a accredited investor, register across a few of them, download 20 apartment deals right now. They're actually out there. They're live right now. They're available. Take into consideration the fact that some of the crowdfunding sites 
um, are an intermediary and therefore take a portion of the profits. So the returns would be a little bit lower than if you were investing directly in, you know, with someone like you, for example. And then, so adjust for the returns and then look at them all, look at all the preferred returns, look at all this profit splits, look at all the managed fee structures, look at all the assumptions and start to learn like, how do they all differ? How are they similar? How do the business plans differ? It actually is very efficient to just print out 10 or 20 opportunities and start to learn very, very quickly. So let's, let's, let me ask you a little bit about what you've learned over, over the course of this uh, time. As far as what profit split seems to be fair to you, what type of, um, you, you mentioned something, and I'm sorry to double up on the question, but no uh, the profit splits. And then we also talk about a preferred return. And then you said at the back of the preferred return, you have uh, another split. Um, now, I know there's a lot of ways to design uh, these OMs. So what do you look for specifically in, in those to make it fair? Yeah. So just to be clear, every asset class is different. Okay. Mm. Um, and, every, and so, but, but I'm just going to generalize. Okay. As a generalization, and again, everyone is listening. I am one person's opinion. You're going to want to get multiple opinions before you come to your own conclusion as to what you should be targeting. But for me, I look for a minimum of 8% preferred return, okay? And I look at um, the splits. And so the splits that I typically see are between 80, 20 in favor of investors on the absolute highest end. That's the most common highest end. And what, if, so you said, because both sides are investors. So when, if, when you're talking about an 80, 20 favoring the investor, is that the passive? Oh, so, so on the passive side, so 80% goes to investors, 20% goes to the managers. Okay. Okay. So first you're looking for, um, you're looking for a pref of 8% plus a much, much higher split on the back as well. Well, no. So let, so let me just, uh, just finish here. So okay, sorry. I'm used to seeing are between 80, 20 at the very max end, mm. which, which I consider unusual and 50, 50 at the lowest end. So in other words, do you see better than 80, 20? Very rarely, but maybe do you see worse than 50, 50, very rarely, but maybe. But if I see below 50-50, which I just saw yesterday, I just kind of almost laugh at it and throw it in the garbage. I'm like, that's where I'm saying I don't need to be that lack that profitability, right? Because it just isn't necessary. I'm going to find everything else that has that. So, or doesn't have that low of a split. Now, the way that I kind of function with where the split should land between 80-20 and 50-50 is commensurate with really a function of two things to really simplify. One is how much work has to be done for the opportunity. And two is how experienced is the operator? If you really want to boil it down, it's a combination of those two things. The more experience, the more the manager typically can command, and the more you might be willing to give up in exchange for leveraging that experience. And the, the more work, um, I think the more fair it is for the manager to make more of a split because they're putting more work into it, right? So I wouldn't expect this to be a development deal at 80-20 because the managers are not getting a very big profit split for all that work. Nor would I expect to be, see a completely stabilized opportunity with basically no, 100% occupied building with very little work and no rehab work or anything at a 50-50 split because I don't think that, that the managers deserve that, that type of split in exchange for less work. So mm-hmm. everything else typically lands in between. Um, so that's, and by the way, I see preferred returns higher than eight, eight's the minimum. If I see seven or six, I kind of stay away from it from the profitability perspective we talked about mm-hmm. and the minimum cash flow targets that I have. And then I see preferred returns typically go from eight to 10%, most commonly eight, and then nine and 10, you see from time to time, depending on the circumstance, over 10 is extremely rare. So let's talk about IRRs. Um, are you, so internal rate of return for anybody who didn't already get that um, would be a question for you. I 
uh, and by the way, everybody, if you just go to the show notes right now, uh, check it out. We've got uh, uh, Jeremy's entire criteria um, put up there. So just go to the show notes right now because there's a great chance that you might have an opportunity for him to look at. And let's just do your own pre uh, underwriting. So check that first. And if it's something that meets all of those bullet points, then you'll get Jeremy's uh, information at the end so you can contact him about that. Going back to IRR, I remember seeing something that was showing a minimum IRR of what was it, 15%? So, yeah, it's funny. That, I, I actually, that was actually the ROI, not the IRR, including the time value of money. Oh, was, okay. It was 15 to 20. That's just typically what I find. So, in fact, what I focus on, because I'm so heavily focused on cash flow. I really focus more so on my cash flow minimums as opposed to ROI or IRR target. Once I hit those cash flow minimums, everything else seems to line up to a typical same similar ROI. So yeah. I target a minimum of 9% cash flow uh, projected to investors for year one, uh, net to investors, and 11% average annualized cash flow projected net to investors over, say, a 10-year horizon. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I will say is right now, because I consider a very dangerous time to invest, I really need to have unique pricing. Like market rate to me is not okay right now. I'm just concerned about it because everything I invest in is stabilized. We're not adding much padding there. So if there's mm -hmm. an adjustment, I don't have that padding. So um, I have a very strong preference for something that's 10% or better discount to true market value right now. That's an additional layer I put in just as we're ending the cycle. So, okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. We think it's really important to buy with equity anyway. And so, and I think that's a, great strategy for anybody who's on the operating side. So take that to heart, what Jeremy just said. Um, at this time of the cycle, it is important to buy for cash flow. It is important to see what you can do with the property. But to be conservative, always try to find uh, an opportunity where you're buying it with equity. And to give you a small, small example of that, if you're maybe buying in a six, six cap area, maybe look for something that's a seven and a half cap within that area, that'll show that you have um, several hundred thousand dollars of equity going into it in case the cap rates do what they call decompress, which is to open up and when at the sell side, they're selling at seven and a half anyway, so that way you can exit without a loss. Would you agree with most of that or is there any points you want to bring on that? No, I agree 100%. You know, it depends on the strategy you're employing. So people who are doing more value-added strategy, they're building in some padding. I think they would argue that they don't have to get the same discount because they're going to build up some padding. Whereas the people that are investing really stabilized, like me, which is the hardest really way to, to invest right now because you're going in and not building padding and you're mm -hmm. concerned about an adjustment in the prices. So that's why I kind of really am very staunch on getting that unique pricing right now to, to protect us from a downturn. But it, it, exactly what you described is correct. I think I agree with you 100%. Awesome. I know we missed one. So let's yeah. let's go over the one we I missed. Think it was more quickly is what you said, correct? Oh, yeah. It, yeah. I think a lot of people might have that. Yeah. Is how do I get this money working for me? Yeah. So that's actually tricky right now for two reasons. And it's very challenging. One is because we're at the end of the cycle. So if you're going to be particularly careful, it's kind of hard to be particularly careful and put it to work quickly, right? It's mm -hmm. easier to do one or the other. So um, I side with the particularly careful and I'd rather have my money sit on the sidelines and just wait for the downturn to get in at the right time. Not everybody's like that. Some people want to have all their money working all the time, which I understand. And then maybe they'll just um, have different criteria to be able to make it work more quickly. The other challenge is that the stuff I invest in, most of it is not allowed to be publicly marketed um, so that you have to find it all through networking with the exception of crowdfunding sites. So 
I've actually never personally invested in a deal on a crowdfunding site because I have the network to find all the sponsors directly and the managers directly. But if somebody really wants to accelerate and become, uh, be able to put their work more, uh, their money to work more quickly, they can log on if they're an accredited investor onto all the crowdfunding sites and find, right now they'll probably find tens and tens of deals and they can invest in those today, right? And so that's a really good way to actually to do it more quickly. But just know Great. that you've got to, you've got to really do your own due diligence on all those opportunities across all those crowdfunding sites. Um, you got to make sure that you agree that it's the right fit for you. You agree with all these sums just because a crowdfunding site vetted it themselves. It doesn't mean you're going to agree with what they vetted and what they concluded on it. And I'll tell you this, I, when I was on the um, investment committee on Realty Mogul for a couple of years and I was part of the, the, you know, we were deciding what to invest in. There were a whole bunch of times where there, we'd get an opportunity, we'd pass on it in like a, a quick, a quick second because we'd like, yeah, this X and Y and Z, all flags, done, move on. And then three weeks later, we find it posted on a different crowdfunding site who had different criteria than us. And so, and we were like, wow, we didn't understand how it passed their underwriting criteria. So I'm giving you this example, not because I'm saying Realty Mogul is the best necessarily, although I think their, their underwriting is really good. The point is that, you know, as an investor, you've got to look out for yourself, right? And you need, you need to undertake into account the fact that all the crowdfunding sites are making transactional fees and other fees by having these opportunities up there. And so they're not perfectly aligned with you as an investor. So just be careful and make sure that you're vetting everything properly. The crowdfunding sites are great. I think they serve a really good purpose. And a lot of them are really good at underwriting. But just make sure everything's lining up and that you're 100% comfortable before you get into any opportunity. But that is a way Excellent. to actually accelerate the, the, uh, you know, the putting your money to work. Uh, that's, that's all great advice. Let's just touch on one, one last thing that I think we've just mentioned it so many times. And there's probably going to be a few people that don't know what it is. So, um, Jeremy, what's an accredited investor? Sure. Yeah. Sorry. So, I'm just giving you the SEC definition here. Okay. So, an accredited investor, if you're single, in other words, you're filing your taxes single, not joint, then they say you have to have made at least two hundred thousand in the last two years annually, and expect to make two hundred thousand this year. Each of or, the last two years, right? Yeah. At least for the last two years plus this year, expected for this year. Or you have to have a net worth of a million dollars or more, excluding the value of your primary residence, any equity in your primary home. Now, if you're filing jointly, you have to have made at least 300000 combined for the past two years and expect to make 300000 combined this year or have that $1 million combined minimum net worth. So it's easier on the net worth part if you're joint because you're combining your net worth at the same total, whereas the income qualifier, and it could be either or. So you don't have to have the income if you got the net worth. You don't have to have the net worth if you got the income. Yeah. Um, and so that's how the criteria works for whether you're an accredited investor or not. If you're not accredited, how do you find opportunities? Like what, uh, what ways would you find that if you only made a hundred grand a year or if you only had 500,000 in the bank? Yeah. So if you're, and by the way, I should, I'm not an attorney, so you should go ahead and double check the definitions to make sure good, I got good call. Anyway. Um, so if you're not accredited, it is a little bit harder to find opportunities. There's still a lot of opportunities out there that accept both accredited and not accredited investors. I don't want people out there to think that there aren't any. From a easy to find, the easiest ones to find are a couple of the crowdfunding sites like Realty Mogul, Realty Shares, and a couple others have their own funds they put together that are specifically designed to accept accredited and non-accredited investors at very low minimum. I believe, I shouldn't actually quote what the minimums are, but either a few hundred or a few thousand to start. So. Um, you can actually log on to some of those crowdfunding sites, not necessarily get access to the individual opportunities we talked about if you're not accredited, but you can get access to their funds. And their funds actually are basically funds that have combined a whole bunch of assets together that you can invest in in a big pool. 
So that's an option if you're not accredited and you want to be able to quickly put money to work. But again, you're going to want to be careful and really learn and understand what you're investing in. So what about networking events? Like how would you uh, find a person to put your money with? And I guess to follow up on that is a lot of the regulation uh, D 506 B's that allow a non-accredited um, you're really not allowed to tell everybody about those opportunities on air. So it's kind of hard to find them. So let's just imagine that that was you. And I know you're accredited and been doing this for a long time. If you were walking into some networking events, how do you think Jeremy Roll would find an opportunity that he could invest in? And how would that look? Sure. So the first thing I would do, it, well, actually, the first thing I would do is make sure the event you're going to isn't a sales pitch. Um, so that's number one. <laughs> Number two, once you're able to validate that, if you can ask some other people who've been there or if you kind of size up what they're presenting, then you want to go and actually go when there's either a panel or a speaker that's actually the correct um, match for your topic. So if you want to invest in apartments, go to an apartment panel discussion, for example. Don't go to a mobile home park panel discussion thinking you're going to be able to find apartment investments necessarily, mm. right? From there, um, the two best ways to find opportunities um, through networking at those events are either talking to other investors, which is my favorite, because you may find some investors who've actually invested with an operator. Like if you found me there and I invested with an operator, I'd be able to say, yeah, I've invested in this with this operator, these mobile home parks. They're great. I've actually invested in them for six years. I've been getting my checks. They're really good. You may want to talk to them, right? So that's a referral that's legal and everything else, right? In other words, like I'm not showing you their opportunity right there on the spot. I'm just telling mm -hmm. you who I invested with. And then the other option is that you may find operators or sponsors there. Now, the, the sponsors are not allowed to discuss their individual opportunities that are available at the time at those meetings, to your point. That's illegal. It's illegal to publicly solicit investors for those types of opportunities. And that's the tricky part about having the network to find them. But you still may be able to meet the sponsor. They may tell you what they do high level. They could talk about previous deals they've done, from my understanding. And then you can get to know them. And once they build a pre-existing relationship with you, which is a whole different definition, then they're allowed to share that with you. The interesting thing to your point, though, is that you want to watch out for guys who are walking around these meetings soliciting investors with their 506B offerings at the time because I've seen that. And then yep. they're literally breaking the law by soliciting investors at those meetings in that way. Yep. And so you want, you want to stay away from those operators because you don't know what else they're doing that's incorrect from a legal perspective, right? So yep. that's actually reading between the lines. I think it's important enough to go a little bit more deeply into we're not attorneys and the laws change anyways. However, what I've seen is, and I feel like it's illegal from what I know, is I'll have, uh, I'll see people um, blast out an opportunity and they'll say verbatim, I can accept at least 35, up, up to 35 non-accredited investors. Right. But as I understand the laws, uh, what with working with our securities attorney, I don't see a way that you can be uh, telling both telling people about it and being able to accept any non-accredited investors. So as I understand that situation, those guys are breaking the law. My understanding, and you know, I'm not an attorney. So my understanding is that once um, a sponsor has created a pre-existing relationship with an investor and then add them to their investor database, then, and by the way, pre-existing relationship, every attorney has a different opinion about what that means. Because for those of you listening, a lot of these laws are very grayish. They're not well-defined. And so you ask 10 attorneys, you get 10 different answers, not the attorney's fault necessarily, just that the rules are not very clear. So my understanding is that once they create a pre-existing relationship with the investor and add them to their database and they have that pre-existing relationship, they can then send them an opportunity, even if they're not yeah. accredited. 
and actually, I just want to give you some examples because I've seen a difference. I've asked a lot of attorneys that question over time out of curiosity. So I'll tell you some of the answers I've gotten. The most common answer I get is if you have at least one phone call or in-person meeting with somebody and you know them for at least 30 days and you keep records about like some type of proof that you can actually say, like, in other words, if you say, look, this person graduated from this school or does this for work or met them here at this event or whatever it is, some type of record showing when it was and all this, you know, keeping the records is always good. But that 30 day mark after actually getting to know them is, is very typical. Some attorneys will say you have to at least spoken with them twice or three times to really create a pre-existing relationship. Um, some attorneys will say you have to have met them in person at least once. You know, like, I mean, these are all very different criteria, right? Because yeah. someone, some, some sponsor living in California talking to someone in New York who's never met this person and has them as an investor because they've known them for five years but never met them in person literally isn't qualifying according to that attorney because they've never met them in person even though they've talked to them 20 times over five years on the phone, right? So you definitely need to consult your attorney and really come up with what you're most comfortable with, with the mm -hmm. best interpretation. You, you know, you may want to talk to a couple of attorneys and get a couple of opinions. Um, by the way, I just want to go back to one thing that I should yeah. have mentioned in the previous topic very quickly about networking because networking is key. I should, anyone out there that's listening that's an investor that wants to network with me and trade opportunities or find, I mean, the hardest part of my day is finding opportunities. That's the most frustrating thing for me because they're not allowed to be uh, publicly marketed. And I love networking with other investors. I'm happy to, you know, help them. We, I like brainstorming, you know, did you invest with this sponsor? What do you think of them? How was your experience? And that is invaluable information and in due diligence. There's been so much excellent information that has been shared. So I really appreciate your time. And your email is down at the bottom. So guys, just scroll down, you'll get the email. But Jeremy, for those people driving, uh, would you just kind of uh, share that with us real fast? Sure. Best way to reach me is via email, not phone. I'm just on constant calls all day long that are scheduled. So my email address is jroll, which is J-R-O-L-L at Roll Investments, which is R-O-L-L, investments, plural, which is with an S, so investments.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. I hope you heard Brad Sumrock on episode 41. He came to the podcast with a ton of value. We've got tickets available to an event hosted by Denver Apartment Network. The event is June 5th. And guess what? I'm here to give you a promo code to get these $95 tickets absolutely free just for the listeners of the Creative Real Estate Podcast. But the offer ends next week, so go get the free tickets now and save yourself almost 100 bucks. You'll find the Eventbrite link in the show notes. When you register, just put the promo code DANFREE, that's D-A-N-F-R-E-E, -E, all in capitals for Denver Apartment Network Free. Anyway, put in that promo code and you'll save $95, the entire $95, just because you're a loyal listener of this podcast.